I do have another title. And I must confess that I, uh, I look for titles that uh, when people are doing a search on the Internet, there are some titles, Money Matters, eh. Now, but the old country western song called Working Like the Devil, Serving the Lord, now that's a title, folks. People are going to find out, they're going to look just to figure out where in the world did that come from. So let's call that our title for today. There's a statement that's been made sometimes, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. And our text probably is an illustration of that. You think of the extravagant act of devotion of Mary. Uh, and I think we would have to agree, would we not, that that certainly is a good deed. And yet the disciples, not just Judas, the disciples as a group are all over her harshly for what she's done. Her good deed has not gone unpunished. We will see from our, uh, not just our text, but from John's words in John chapter 12, why Judas was so distressed But I think the more important question might be for us, why are the disciples somehow on the same wavelength with Judas? Why are they joining with him in railing against Mary for her act of devotion? And I think we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it that this event is so beautiful in the eyes of our Lord that he resolves that it will be recorded and reported and remembered everywhere the gospel is preached. That ought to tell us this is a pretty important text and this is a pretty important uh, event in the life of our Lord and certainly in Mary's life. Our text has three main sections. And you will note, by the way, that I have uh, placed in your uh, notes the parallel text. You got those? Matthew and Mark are the most similar text, and they are on the first side of the page. Then Luke's account is put beside John's account from John chapter 12. And at the bottom, across taking up the whole uh, width of the page, is that text from Luke chapter 7, because the question is whether or not that is speaking about the same event. But even if it is not, it is informative and instructive. So it's good for us to have these texts in front of us to see the full story of what is uh, taking place. So the, the text has three main sections. The first two verses is the consultation amongst the Jewish religious leaders uh, and their determination to put Jesus to death um, and yet their inability at that moment to do so. When the text comes full circle, by the end of our passage, they have now the solution to their problem, and his name is Judas. In the second uh, part of our passage, and it is the main part, we find the anointing of our Lord Jesus. That is, of course, the paramount part. And then we have the defection of Judas in verses 10 and 11. So that's the, the layout of our text, and we will spend most of our emphasis and time on that middle portion, the anointing of Jesus by Mary. Okay, some initial observations that may be beneficial to us in approaching this particular text. 
You'll notice that it is found uh, recorded in uh, uh, several times in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16, the longest uh, version of it. In Mark, uh, our text, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Then I put Luke chapter 7 in, in question marks. You'll notice that it's very similar in some ways. The house is the house of Simon. Not Simon the leper, but Simon the Pharisee. Although in Jesus' mind, maybe those aren't so far apart. And it comes earlier than we would have expected. It is interesting that Luke does not include in the parallel text, as you'll see in your in, in your uh, your text uh, there that's before you, he does not include the anointing of Jesus in the midst of his account of of this parallel event. But it but something very similar is found in Luke chapter seven. My problem with Luke chapter seven is not the chronological problem because the authors are not very bound in their minds to staying within strict chronological order. My problem is that in Luke chapter 7, the woman is presented as a sinful woman. And it may have been true of Mary, but I don't want to lay this on Mary when she isn't named. And so I I stop and just call this an interesting parallel, (laughs) but I'm not going so far as to say I'm convinced it actually is Mary, but it's a very similar event. And by the way, hospitality would not make this act as unusual as we might think in those days and times. So Luke 22, and then John. Interestingly, John chapter 11, verse 2, refers to when it's talking about the, the sickness of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, the sisters, it speaks of Mary as the one who anointed Jesus' feet, but the anointing isn't going to happen until chapter 12. So he's actually pointing us forward and saying, keep reading, you're going to see her, this event's going to come. So he refers to her in that context, even before the description of the account in chapter 12. Chronological footnote. When you look at Matthew and Mark's account, you'll see that there in the first verses uh, on your front page. It is two days before the Passover, right? Two days. When you come to John's account, it is six days before the Passover. John is the one who keeps it in chronological order. So this event actually occurs before the triumphal entry. When Matthew and Mark pick it up, they're doing a flashback because they want to show the link between this anointing and Judas's betrayal. Where in John's account, it does not, it shows us much of the character of Judas, but it does not link it in terms of cause effect with the, the choice that Judas makes to betray the Lord Jesus. Only John names Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. When you look at the accounts of Matthew and Mark, it is the house of Simon the leper. It is a woman who does these things, and we are not told the details that we find in in John's Gospel. In Matthew and Mark, Mary anoints Jesus' head. In John, she anoints Jesus' feet. And you could, if you went to Luke, you could see the same thing. Okay, folks, when you put oil on people's head, it runs downhill. <laughs> Great scientific observation. And, and so it's no surprise that you would start at the head and end at the feet. And notice, she dries his, his feet with her hair, 
She doesn't dry his hair, she dries his feet. That's because the oil is going down. And so there's not a problem with one person talking about where she starts and another author talking about where she finishes. In my mind, that's not even even a question to be entertained. Matthew and Mark emphasize Judas and his uh, sin. What's interesting is when you come to Luke and then John chapter 13, in Luke's parallel account of this, he doesn't say anything about Mary and the anointing. What he says is, then Satan entered him. So you really have these two different elements, which is very true to the spiritual life, is it not? You have the man, Judas, and his sin and his greed, and you have Satan and his influence. And what I'm suggesting to you is you have a convergence of those. In fact, I'm going to go a little further. I'm going to say that the excessive love of money is a gateway through which Satan gains control of one's life. Ananias and Sapphira, why has Satan filled your heart to do this thing? So anyway, uh, it seems to me that you have both sides of that emphasized. There is possession, but there's more than that. Here's a strange one. Both Mary and Judas have an outward, overt evidence of affection. Judas a kiss. Mary an anointing. Isn't that just almost, doesn't it almost turn your stomach? And when Judas comes to Jesus, in one of the accounts, Jesus says to him, Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? Do you see how inappropriate it is? It is the expression of love and devotion, but it is mixed with an act of betrayal. Here's the woman who gives her all as a genuine expression of her love. (laughs) I love this next point. Martha was serving. When isn't she serving? She's always fixing dinner. Hey, I am grateful. Some people have brought dinner to us. Don't get me wrong. I love dinners. And, And it's great to do. But Martha's always out there rattling the dishes in the kitchen. And Mary, predictably, is once again at Jesus' feet. Both of them are serving. Don't miss the point. Both of them are serving in what they do. Mary was doing what should have been done, but no one else wanted to do. Now, it took me a while to get to this. In fact, if you could see the way I scratch out and edit my my notes, I initially said, that what Mary was doing was not only not required by the law, it wasn't even necessary. She went above and beyond. That's not true. When you look at Luke chapter 7 and the story of the woman who anoints Jesus' feet, Jesus makes a point of saying to Simon, when I walked in your door, you did not give me the customary kindness that would be expected. You should have washed my feet. Look what she's doing compared to what you ought to have done. He didn't do a thing. Now you go to John 13. And here you have the disciples coming into that room in order to observe the Passover. Everybody walks past the basin. Do they not? Jesus does the job, which is the lowest 
rung on the social ladder. <laughs> he washes feet. He takes the stinky job, and it's the lowest job. So what I'm suggesting is Mary was right in the setting of this dinner. She was right to say Jesus' feet need to be washed. It was a job that needed to be done, and she went above and beyond the call of duty to do it. Okay, now I'm crawling out farther on the limb. But it struck me, I, I, I think that we, I, I'm going to really come down strongly in defense of Mary. I, I feel that many of us, myself included, have, have looked at what Mary has done as a sort of an outpouring of, of emotionality without any intellectuality. In other words, she's acting emotionally, but not really intellectually gathering it, and somehow Mary accidentally prepares Jesus for burial? You better scratch that one off your list, folks. I think it's wrong. I think she knows exactly what's going to happen or close to what's going to happen, and she's acting within the parameters of that. But I think the other thing is, when you read through the Old Testament, think about how much smell is related to God, plus and minus. Right? You look at the incense that's used in, in, in the, in the uh, tabernacle. You look at all the references to the sacrifices. And I always wonder to myself, why does Jesus, why does God get the fat? I mean, you know, if you were going to have a friend come over for steaks, what you wouldn't do is put on a great big hunk of fat and cook that and hand it to your guest, would you? The reason is the fat gives the aroma. God doesn't eat the meat. He smells the smell. So you're offering something that's a sweet-smelling savor. When you look at Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, you will find that this whole olfactory thing, the smell thing, is big in terms of what pleases God. And in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about believers being a sweet-smelling savor of God to men. Now, there's the other side of those things which are a stench to God and his nostrils, so to speak. But the whole point that I'm trying to make is, look, this woman puts out this perfume and the whole room is filled with the odor. Doesn't that resonate a little bit and say, maybe, maybe she thinks God loves a sacrifice that smells good. And if she does, she's right in line, in my opinion, with uh, the Old Testament and even the New. Okay. Those are the preliminary observations. Now let's look at the Jerusalem conspiracy in verses 1 and 2. We would all agree, I hope, that this little council they're having about doing away with Jesus, <laughs> this isn't the first time they thought about killing him. It's been clear ever since chapter 3 of Mark that they intended and resolved to kill Jesus. That was when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. They go away and say, it's done. He's, he's finished. We're going to get rid of him. 
What's different about this one is Jesus has now invaded their territory. He has made his triumphal entry. He has humiliated them when they tried to embarrass him with their questions. And now, you know, here are all these people and more and more people are turning in their minds to following Jesus, trust, believing in him. And so they have a strong resolve. Here's their plan. Arrest and kill Jesus secretly. In other words, they don't want a public event. Jesus has very carefully kept himself out of their grip by taking over the temple and doing his teaching in the temple and then going out to some undisclosed disclosed location at night. They don't dare touch him in that temple because the crowds are there. They're all listening to Jesus teach. It can't be public, and they don't want to arouse the crowds. In other words, they know if they did this publicly, they're in for a riot, and they're not up for that because obviously Rome would be all over them and the whole situation. So it boils down to this, not during the feast, right? Can't be. That's the parameters that are set even before Judas has entered into the conspiracy with them. That's the one qualifying factor. They don't have the means yet to do it. It starts us with this quandary amongst the leaders, and they're saying, we want Jesus killed. It has to be private. It has to be separate some other time than the feast. We don't know how that's going to happen. Judas is the answer, may I say this, to their prayers. Is he not? He is the solution to their problem, as we'll see at the end of our particular text. So this whole thing sets the stage for what's coming. When you look then at the next passage that we're going to deal with, and Jesus has the disciples prepare, two of the disciples, we know it's Peter and John, but two of the disciples to go prepare, do you notice how enigmatic this whole thing is? It's because... Judas has now determined, and he's looking for a time that is private, there Jesus is looking for privacy with his disciples when he eats the Passover, correct? It's the perfect time to arrest him. So Jesus foils the attempt by, by setting this thing up in a way Judas has no idea where it's going to be. And so he then, only in the midst of the meal, goes out and leaves. And that's a whole different story that we'll come to a little bit later. So you got this tension set up. Jewish leaders, Jesus must die, but not during the feast. God's plan, Jesus must die during the feast because he is the Passover lamb. It has to be then. So now the tension is, how does this thing come to a resolution to where Jesus does die, but at the right time? That's where we see our Lord Jesus masterfully, sovereignly orchestrating the events to bring about his death in his time. So when Jesus talks about his hour, my friend, that, that's, not a, that's not some kind of a nebulous metaphor he has an hour, and it's going to happen in that hour. The anointing of Jesus, verses 3 through 9. This is the second section and the major section in our text. 
And I confess, I'm giving you a composite account of this event. And the reason is, I think we, we are intended to understand this event in the light of all that Scripture says bearing upon this event, and not just to close our eyes and say, here's Mark. Now, we need to see Mark's emphasis, but we need to make sure we've got our details right, and that will only come as we take in all the accounts. So here we go. Six days before the Passover, not two, six days before the Passover, before Jesus makes his triumphal entry, I understand it to be the following day that he'll do that, but but it's six days before the Passover, they have this meal. They're sitting at the meal uh, in Bethany. That's the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. But they're, they're there at the house of Simon the leper. I have no idea who that fellow is. I think we would have to say Simon the ex-leper. Wouldn't you assume that? In other words, this is Simon the guy who had been a leper. I don't think Jesus is sitting at the table with a leper. And especially when there's a guy that was dead who's sitting at that same table. I think this whole thing has this feel of here are redeemed, as it were, people who are sitting joyfully in the presence of the Savior, celebrating who he is and what he's done. Anyway, Simon the leper. And, as John tells us, Lazarus, who's seated at the table, Martha, who's out rattling the dishes in the kitchen, and Mary, who is there at the table, Uh, anointing our Lord Jesus. She brings her jar of costly, aromatic, I'm going to say it, perfume. Now, hey, by the way, did you notice? That's the way it was read. Some talk, you know, some translations talk about aromatic oils and blah, blah, blah. Perfume! That's what it is. Expensive perfume. I think it's significant, too. We'll get to that in a minute. By the way, I agree with Jesus. The only time I'd wear this stuff is if I was dead too. (laughs) Anyway, so on we go. She brings the perfume. She uses it to anoint Jesus from head to foot. She takes that that, that, uh, vial, breaks it, so that now you don't put the cork back in the bottle or whatever it is, and she pours all of it out on Jesus. It runs down his entire body, and, of course, his clothing as well, as I would understand, and ends up at his feet. She dries his feet with her hair. That's her towel. Judas observes this, and he's madder than a wet hen. And we know why. Judas is the keeper of the money bag, John tells us. In fact, in John 13, when Judas goes out, Jesus says to Judas, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. Disciples are off in la-la land, and they don't know what that means. Jesus does. But he goes out, and by the way, it never occurred to me. I'm sure he went out with the box. I don't think he said, oh, let me leave the money behind for safekeeping. He's going out, folks, to collect uh, more. But anyway, he takes the box out. And the reason I say that, too, is the disciples assumed he was either going to go out to A, buy something they needed, need money for that, or give to the poor. So I take it that Judas carried the money. He was the banker. He carried the money with him. He was the purchasing agent, and he was also the dispersing agent. And it's no wonder he was taking stuff out of the bag. He's the only guy that knows what's going on. I'm sure church finance committees would do well to think about Judas 
and how to avoid those kinds of things in these days. He's angry, and we know from our text, uh, the parallel text, some of the disciples, it says, were angry, discussing amongst each other. The reality is Judas instigated discontent and anger amongst all of the disciples. And then they turn on Mary. Can you get this? They turn on Mary and chew her out for waste. That's incredible to me. But that's where the disciples uh, end up at the moment. Jesus comes to Mary's defense. Ah, I love this part. But I think he keeps quiet long enough to let this whole thing sort of mature and develop and let us see these guys for where they are at this particular moment in time. Leave her alone. She's done a good service for me. I need to look at this. I think I saw one of the translations somewhere said beautiful. I like that better. She did a beautiful thing for Jesus. You'll always have the poor with me, but you won't always have me. What he's saying is, here is a moment in time. Mary knows when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, she will not see him again. I believe she knows that. There is this window of time in which she has the opportunity, and if she did not do it now, it wouldn't be done. So she has done something for him while he's there. The poor will always be there. You can always minister to them. Jesus is saying, if you understood the time, you would understand the necessity of doing what she did now. She did what she could. <laughs> you know, she didn't, she didn't get her credit card out and, and run down to the store and, and charge up a bill. She had this precious perfume. It was available, accessible. She did what she could. It was right for her. Nobody challenged her being at the floor washing feet. The only thing they challenged was the extravagant act of love that utilized such a valuable resource. She anointed me beforehand for burial. I'll come back to that. But I think that's exactly what she intended to do. Not what she incidentally did. What she meant to do. And therefore, her act of devotion, Jesus says, will be remembered wherever the gospel is proclaimed. Would you not agree with me that Jesus thought this was really important? <laughs> I think it's huge. Here's some observations about the anointing of Jesus. I believe her offering was the gold standard of that day. You've seen all these things on the commercials. Well, they'll say, you know, have you thought about buying gold? Well, maybe we should. I'm not going down that trail right now. But some people would say gold is something that retains its value. Money that's got something printed on it that's only worth the paper it's written on may be another story. So it seems to me that this precious substance was something of fixed and certain value that would always have some worth. This is, uh, if you want to call it that, this could well have been her retirement account. So it's something that has great and lasting value. Here's, the, all right, here's why I got on this binge about, about the perfume stuff. She offered 
what had great potential for her benefit. Folks, men don't wear perfume. Would you all agree with that, please? Okay, so if that's true, I know we wear shaving stuff and all that, but if if it's true that this is a very, you know, this is better than Chanel number five. If this stuff is priceless perfume, then would it not be perceived to be this woman's glory to wear it? See, this isn't some old broken down cart off in, in the back that's been sitting there for 20 years and she doesn't want it anymore. This is something that for her is, is a beautifying element for her would enhance her. What she gives is what has great potential value for her. Not just in the bank, but if it were used, it has value for her. Oh well, okay, I'll get off that. Her offering is total. She doesn't keep a portion of it like Ananias and Sapphira. She gives it all. Doesn't just pour a few precious drops of this stuff. Save the rest for later. Here's the thing I like. By doing this beautiful thing in adoration of Jesus, she beautifies herself incidentally. Now think about this, folks. Perfume is something women wear to beautify them. And and I really think this stuff is powerful enough that, that Jesus carries this fragrance with him on his body and on his clothing right up to his death and burial. But Mary wipes his feet with her hair. And in the process of wiping her feet, his feet with her hair, she smells good. Is that not right? She smells good. She beautifies herself, not by seeking to do it, but by seeking to beautify her Lord. And I, I want to, uh, I'm going to go off to meddle a little bit, but isn't, isn't that really true of so much? The things that we seek to do for our own benefit are not beautifying to us or to Him. The things that we do sacrificially to beautify Him beautify us. And I'm not just talking about smell. That's one of them. But if she did a beautiful thing, she is a beautiful person. And that's why Jesus says, I want her remembered wherever the gospel's preached. This is a beautiful thing. She's beautified herself unintentionally by her sacrifice. Her active devotion was totally voluntary, not something required, but something which she saw as necessary when nobody else did. Okay, her generosity was not uh, well received by the disciples, Judas in particular, but Mark doesn't bother to tell us where it came from. The fact is, all the disciples jumped on board and angrily criticized Mary for her wasteful use of such a valuable resource. I think she knew what she was doing. I'm going to come down to that. I've been thinking about that a fair bit, but I think Mary knew what she was doing. I don't think she just had an emotional, feminine outburst of emotional love, and by George, she hit the jackpot. 
because she actually prepared Jesus. Look at what it, in, in, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 12, there's a purpose clause. She does this in order to. And I take that as a purpose of hers. She did this with the intention of producing this result. That's the way I read the text. The other one is in John chapter 12, verse 7. And you can see that. This is the translation of the Net Bible, and I found it very interesting to look at the notes. It says in, in John 12, 7 on your uh, printout there, So Jesus said, Leave her alone. She has, she has kept it for the day of my burial. Now, there's a textual variant here. This is, the, this is what you would see coming out of the text type that ends up in the King James Version. The Net Bible translates it rightly, I believe. She has kept it. Other translations, I'm sorry to say the New American Standard among them, says, let her keep it for the day of my burial. Folks, if she had kept it for the day of his burial, she wouldn't have used it. She goes to the grave to anoint his body. He's gone, right? She'd have gone with her little old bottle out there and she'd have been all ready to go. Hey, she used it at the time it could be used and it did prepare him for his burial. So I take that to indicate this is not some accidental event but that it is uh, more purposeful on her part. The decision of Judas and the delight of the chief priests, the last two verses. Surely we see a cause-effect relationship between the anointing of Jesus and this uh, departure of Judas that takes place where he makes his deal, all because apparently his devotion to money. Cause-effect relationship. John's gospel gives us far more insight into this, but it is clear in John's gospel that this guy's a thief and has been for some time. Loves money. I take it that he has taken on this treasure role. By the way, I take it that Judas is a leader amongst the disciples. A, when Judas criticized Mary, the other disciples joined in. B, you wouldn't make a guy in charge of the money bag if you didn't trust him. You wouldn't make a guy your purchasing agent if you didn't trust him. You wouldn't make a guy the dispersing agency for charity if you didn't trust him. But he was a thief. Money was too important for him. And so in anger, he goes out. And I think Judas had a sense of timing as well. That's the strange part. Mary has a sense that Jesus' life is not for long. I think Judas does too. And he's just cashing in on it. But he realizes that where Jesus is going is not on the prophet side of the ledger. So off he goes to make his deal for the money. And so our text comes full circle. The dilemma of the Jewish religious leaders is suddenly solved by Judas. He gives the opportunity the inside track to Jesus. He knows when Jesus will be somewhere private where they can arrest him. Problem solved, or so they think. Okay, so now I get the conclusion and application. Now, I confess to you, I've been through various versions of this, and I sat back in my seat and did another version back in my chair, so I can only 
tell you that these uh, PowerPoints have already changed once. Sometimes they'll change between your notes and what you see on the screen. That's happened. Sometimes they'll happen between then and now. That's happened too. And there are a lot of things. This text literally explodes when you stop and think about it. And again, if you take it to as seriously as Jesus says this event is, then there ought to be a lot of implications. And so I'm going to tiptoe through them. But let me tell you, this is worth a lot of thought. One, do not demean Mary. And I mean by that, do not make of her some emotional woman who doesn't really get it, but just stumbles across this preparation for Jesus' burial. I think this woman gets it more than all the other disciples put together. That's my take. Maybe I'm wrong. And I know people would disagree. I think she does get it. She gave to prepare Jesus for his burial. By the way, did you notice in the text that was read this morning that John read, it said in Luke, was it 19, they did not recognize the time of Jesus coming. They didn't recognize what was happening at this point in time when he comes. I think Mary has the best sense of timing of anybody in the Gospels. And by the way, isn't it interesting that when Jesus has just gone through this Olivet Discourse and tried to give them some perspective, he says, be alert, be watchful. And all this thing about the fig tree and so on and when the season is, I think what Jesus is saying is, you ought to know what time it is. <laughs> right? You gotta know what time it is. Man, I got it on my wrist. I got it on my phone. I got it back there telling me, shut up. It's time to quit. It's all over the place. What time is it? Mary knows. She knows Jesus' days are numbered. She knows that this is the time and this is the place for her active devotion. And so she acts in a timely manner that I think speaks very highly of her. Some may come, uh, because I'm going to talk about devotion to Jesus, and, and sometimes we're so busy uh, uh, working like the devil, serving the Lord, that we lose sight of what it's all about. I'm going to come to that, but don't come to this conclusion. What this text is saying is, bad conclusion, it's about my devotion, not about my service. <laughs> no, this text says your devotion is revealed by your service. And in your service. The problem is when we get so hooked up with our service that we forget what it's about. Now, think about, for instance, all the many uh, good things that have been done. Hospitals that have been built. People who have been fed. All of those kind of things. You know what the problem with those are? The problem is that in the course of doing those good things, sometimes we forget for whom we are doing them. And when that happens, then we have service divorced from devotion. And that is a scary thing. I've read some very, very disturbing uh, uh, statistics about men who are in full-time Christian ministry and how many of them are depressed, how many of them have gotten themselves in all kinds of trouble, how many of them resign. I think I mentioned some of that to you. But, but you know the problem? They have gotten so caught up in their duty They've forgotten about their devotion. And that, I think, is what this text 
is speaking to us about. Sometimes we're so caught up in the practicalities of our ministry that we forget what it's really about. All right. Mary showed her devotion by performing the lowest level of service. I've said from time to time that there are sometimes there will be people who come to our body and and especially the younger ones who think they have a a, a long period of of successful service for the Lord ahead of them and they'll say in effect I don't want to work back there in the nursery or doing this job or that I really need a significant ministry. Is it not interesting that Mary's significant ministry is the lowest possible job anyone could have taken on. That's why none of the disciples took it on in John 13. Nobody's looking for foot washing jobs, folks. You talk about unemployment, there's never unemployment at the basin. Never. Because people aren't lining up for that job. But that's where she showed her devotion. And as I said, her selfless devotion enhances her beauty. Why is this thing here? Because I think our Lord wants us to remember that the paramount thing he wants from us is our love and devotion. That's what he's seeking for us. More than our service, more than our great contribution to his kingdom, he wants our devotion. And sometimes we get so caught up in the service part of it, we forget him. That's a sad thing. Some acts of devotion may be criticized or condemned by fellow Christians. Be prepared. You do something extravagant for God. Well, the five martyrs, right? The five martyrs, when they go down and they give up their lives, don't look at what happens a long time after, look at what the response is initially. And there's this kind of uproar that says, what a waste. What a waste. Five precious lives. <laughs> no, my friends, it was extravagant devotion. And it honored the Savior. Why were the disciples aligned with Judas here? We ought to be thinking about this one, folks. We ought to be thinking about this. They were somehow more in line with Judas and Satan than they were with Jesus and with Mary. Oh, here's another one that I raised earlier. Is money somehow an inroad to satanic control? I mentioned a book that a classmate of mine wrote years ago where he talks about ways in which Satan gets an inroad uh, when you abandon yourself to sex, abandon yourself to drugs, abandon yourself to anger. And I would say, when you abandon yourself to money. So that when Jesus says in Matthew, no man can serve two masters, he will serve either God or mammon, money. I think when we serve money, we serve Satan. And I think that he begins to get a foothold on us like Ananias and Sapphira. That really is kind of scary. So I leave you with this question. 
Is it not appropriate for us to leave this room asking ourselves, is there some act of extravagant devotion which we should contemplate for him? Now, this is where certain people would grab the offering plates and we'd have an offering right now and, and you know, we'd be saying, in effect, cough it up. Granted, what she gave was worth money. But I would suggest to you that money is not the big, the big focus here. It's our devotion to Him. And for many of us, it may well not be money that is the means by which we express our devotion. Some of us it may be, not necessarily all of us. It may be in our service. And so, if you think about evangelism, for example, in those terms, think about evangelism and witnessing and sharing our faith as an extravagant act of devotion. I think when you read through the book of Acts, you don't see a bunch of Christians getting together and saying, oh my goodness, we got this command, a great commission, what are we going to do about this thing? Ah, let's form a committee and you know, whatever. They were so filled with joy and love and devotion They just couldn't shut up. That's what it's about. Devotion for Him. And that will inspire the service that is appropriate for us and timely for our day. Father, thank You for this wonderful woman. Thank You for the way in which You used her not only to bring glory to Yourself, but to enrich us. May we be like her. In Jesus' name, amen.